Well, good morning. Good to be back with you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Matthew chapter 3, and I will read verses 1 to 12, and, uh, and then we'll pray. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning. We stand amazed at the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I pray that as we consider your word this morning, that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to lay down, to throw down anything that would prevent us from taking hold of those riches. We confess, Lord, that we often call worthless things valuable. And we hold our idols close to us. I pray that you would help us to be done with all of these things. We would learn to live in the freedom of and joy of uh, following you. Though it may cost us everything, we will gain not only in this life, but in the life to come. I pray that you would help us to see these things clearly. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, one theme that takes up a lot of space in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, is in the whole area of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. The assumption being that where the kingdom of God has fallen on good soil and taken root, there will be evidence. There will be fruit. If a 
tree doesn't produce any fruit in nature or that produces fruit other than what it's supposed to produce, we say that isn't a healthy tree. There's something fundamentally wrong with that tree. And if it continues to be unfruitful, unproductive, of course, any gardener worth his salt is going to cut it down, to pull it out, to make room for another tree that will bear fruit. Jesus and and all the biblical writers, actually, assume that principle to be as true in the kingdom of God as it is in nature. As a fruit tree produces fruit, so the seed of grace God plants in a heart will go on to produce a fruitful life of obedience, a life of spiritual fruit to the glory of God. The question is, what is the fruit that follows God's work of grace in the heart? What does it look like? What are its qualities? Can they be observed? Do they follow any kind of pattern? There was an idea kind of floating around when I was growing up that a certain amount of activity and busyness in the proximity of the church was a sign of of genuine faith. That if someone went to all the church meetings and organized all the potlucks, taught Sunday school, you know, there goes a real Christian. Now it's not even that. Now it's if you get out to the main Sunday meeting, you know, most Sundays, two or three out of four a month, and, you know, you have a Bible, you maybe read once or twice a week, you're considered at the more fervent end of the faith spectrum. Like, you're, you're really spiritual. Never in my life have the expectations of genuine faith been so low. And yet never has there been, it seems, more Christians who are totally certain about the genuineness of their faith. Gone are the days of the anxious inquirer, which is kind of a quaint older term, It referred to Christians who weren't strangers to self-examination. Instead of of constantly measuring themselves against other people, they're measuring themselves against the straight rule of Scripture. It's not, am I doing better or worse than, you know, Jack over there? But how does my life measure up against Christ? Hardly anyone wrestles through assurance anymore. And yet, as we look out at the state of professing Christendom, it strikes me that that isn't a good thing, actually. Going back to our text, on the one hand, the Pharisees and Sadducees seem to generate large amounts of religious output, you know? Long public prayers, expensive robes, 
generous donations to the temple, lecture tours. On the other hand, none of it was the kind of fruit that seemed to matter to John or to Jesus or to any of the biblical authors. John says in verse, sorry, Matthew says in verse 7 here, that if the Pharisees and the Sadducees actually wanted to enter the kingdom of God, their lives would need to produce a certain kind of fruit. Sorry, verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, or fruit that follows from repentance. So what is the fruit that follows from repentance in our passage here? Well, we're confronted with this sweet and simple fruit, and that's confession. Confession of sin. That's the kind of fruit that follows genuine faith. What Paul calls elsewhere an eagerness to clear yourselves. This desperate need to acknowledge that our sins have separated us from God and that we are in desperate need of a Redeemer. Now, confession of sin isn't the totality of Christian fruit, nor does its presence in a life guarantee genuine faith, but it's a big one because it's something that only God can produce in us. It's so repulsive to human nature that constantly wants to justify itself and assume the best of itself. We need to pay attention to this because I think some of us view the Pharisees as a kind of caricature in a way that imagines their error could never be ours, that we could never fall into their ditch. Big mistake. Hypocrites don't always wear long robes and pray in the marketplace. Sometimes they look like Demas or Simon the Magician. Sometimes they look like Judas. If we really want to have assurance of faith, and I hope every Christian wants that, we need to look at what God defines as fruit in his word. The confidence hypocrites have in the substance of their faith isn't worth the weight of their confidence. We have Abraham as our father. Isn't a good reason to have assurance, John says. You can't say because I have met my own criteria for faith, therefore I have nothing to worry about. That's the height of folly. If faith, if assurance, if salvation becomes something that we have to convince ourselves of, as, to, as opposed to something God declares about us, we're in a dangerous place. And resting when you're in danger, as the Pharisees did, as hypocrites 
always do is a terrible idea. It's the worst strategy. Where there's danger, we need to acknowledge the danger and run to a place of safety. So I want to take a deeper look at this fruit today. It's not often talked about. Confession. Confession of sin. And I, um, I apologize ahead of time. This is kind of a strange sermon. Uh, there's no headings. So I'm sorry for you note takers out there. Jason's probably not going to invite me back again. That guy's so organized. Puts me to shame. But I have tried to make things easy to follow. So hopefully nobody will get lost. Um, and I want us to, to honestly examine ourselves today. As we should always be doing. It doesn't matter how long we've been in the church, how familiar we are with theological language. We constantly need to be engaged in self-examination, self-reflection. We shouldn't be afraid of doing that. In fact, the reason the church is so shallow today is that so many people avoid that. But in Christ, we shouldn't be afraid of that, right? Paul reminds the Christian, the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. It's not morbid. It's just regular, healthy Christian practice. Notice, first, there's two groups of people identified in this passage. Uh, In the verse, in the first group, verse 6, we have those who confess their sins and are baptized. In other words, those who actually repent. These are compared with uh, two kind of images here. Verse 10, uh, trees that produce fruit and so are preserved. And verse 12, wheat that is gathered up safely into barns. In the second group, uh, verse 7, we have the hypocrites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are observing John's baptism, but not participating in it, uh, nor in the confession of sin. So in other words, they're, they're seeing these crowds gather, uh, but they're keeping a safe distance. These are compared to, again, verse 10, fruitless trees that are cut down and thrown into the fire. And verse 12, uh, like, like chaff, which is the inedible kind of husk that goes over the wheat kernel, uh, which is burned, it says, with a fire that never goes out. These are the two groups identified in this chapter. And these are the only two groups that have ever existed. The whole Bible, from the beginning, starting with Cain and Abel, identifies these same two groups, confessors and hypocrites. Those who confess and turn from their sin and those who think they're in no need of repentance. This is important because we live in a culture that is increasingly tribalistic. You know, we try to group people into various identity categories. Skin color, gender, politics, the list goes on, right? 
the Pharisees were doing the same thing with different categories. They had come to see the world in verse 9 in, term of, in terms of sons of Abraham and non-sons of Abraham, Jew and Gentile. But the Bible, and specifically as the new covenant rolls in, no longer allows us to do that. The Bible outlines two main groups you can boil everything down into. And that is those who confess their sins, like those who come down to John's baptism at the Jordan River, those who get in the water, and those who stay at a distance, observing, being glad they're not like the rabble at the Jordan River. The Pharisees and Sadducees actually believed themselves to be shepherds and teachers, They thought they were the high watermark of religion. In their minds, they were the spiritual successors of the Old Testament saints. John calls them a nest of vipers. So does Jesus. Stephen says the same thing in his sermon right before they stone him to death. He reminds them, Stephen does, that they're actually the spiritual successors of the ones who persecuted the prophets. And the ministry of John, and even more the ministry of Jesus, and the ministry of the Spirit is going to come, verse 11, with power and fire in order to reveal the false from the genuine, the fool's gold from the real gold. That's part of why John eats grasshoppers and wild honey and wears this awful-sounding shirt, right, camel hair, and lives in the desert. It's not because he prefers those things. I mean, maybe he did. It's because those things were meant to set John apart from the religious cliques of the day who don't want to be humbled before God who don't want to suffer, who don't want to confess their sins, who are generally uneasy around sincere faith. The purpose of John's ministry was to reveal that the orthodoxy of the day was an oligarchy of hypocrites. It was just the world disguised in a veneer of churchiness. All the Pharisees did was obscure godliness, put obstacles in the way of godliness, instead of shepherding people into the richness and the fullness of it. And hypocrisy always obscures true faith. That's why Jesus was so harsh with it. Not just for the sake of the hypocrites. He invited them to repent too. But for the sake of all the poor sheep they were ministering to. Peter calls them clouds without rain. Wells without water. They talk a big game, but when it comes down to it, they are empty cisterns. They are dead themselves, and they minister deadness to their followers. 
was true in Jesus' time. It's just as true in our own time. And so what God does in his severe mercy is to send fire, reformation, revival, renewal. Just like he sends the severe mercy of forest fires, which, yeah, burn down the forest, but in doing so, actually provides for the long-term health of the forest. Or in our case, the long-term health of the church. And we often think of judgment and fire in terms of the world. The world gets judged, right? Not the church. Well, that's true. What happens when the world is in the church? One Puritan said, refined worldliness is the present snare of the church of God. He's absolutely right. What was the Pharisee cult but a center of refined worldliness? The guise of genuine faith. I think this is why Peter says in chapter 4.17 that judgment must begin in the household of God. That's what we see in the Gospels. That's what we're seeing in chapter 3 here. That's what we see in Acts. That's what we see throughout church history. Before the kingdom of God was ever dismantling pagan systems, it was hammering the professed orthodoxy of the day. Godless religious systems. And it's important that judgment starts at the household of God. Because a worldly, careless, superficial church is the biggest obstacle to fellowship, the biggest obstacle to worship, the biggest obstacle to prayer, to evangelism. It's the biggest problem facing the church today, and it always has been. Not a lack of programs, not a lack of young people, not a secular state, not a left-leading media, worldliness in the church. Hypocrisy. And the cure for hypocrisy is in one sense so simple and straightforward, and yet in another sense impossibly hard because it attacks us right where we're weak. Confession. Right in the pride, right in the self-sufficiency, right in the delusions about ourselves. Look at the posture of those by the Jordan River, verse 5. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, all the vicinity of the Jordan, were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Here were people who, as they heard John preach about the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God and the terror of sin, knew they couldn't afford to just be passive observers of confession from a distance. They knew they couldn't afford to just hear rumors. 
about John preaching in the wilderness from the safety of their home. They had to go out to him. They had to go. They had to do. They had to confess their sins, and they had to be baptized. It wasn't something anyone else could do for them. And that's an important point we can't miss. The distance from the riverbank of the Jordan River to where the Pharisees were standing, observing, wasn't just a matter of a few hundred feet. It was the distance between heaven and hell. It was the difference between salvation and damnation. We can't hide from the kingdom of God. It is encroaching inevitably, just like we can't hide from the sun or the air. The kingdom of God doesn't care about our atheism or our agnosticism or our veneer of religion. The kingdom of God began at the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and it will keep growing until it fills the whole earth. You can only keep a safe and reserved distance from that entity for so long. We can't escape from God. Even the darkness is as light to him. We can't escape from the demands of his righteousness. And the solution isn't to hide or to pretend that you somehow stand apart from that rabble over there, it's to come into the water. Matthew Henry says, the Jews had been taught to justify themselves, but John teaches them to accuse themselves and not to rest in the general confession of sin made for all Israel on the Day of Atonement. Rather, everyone should make a particular acknowledgement of the plague of his own heart. A sincere confession of sin is required in order to receive peace and pardon. The only ones who are ready to receive Jesus Christ as their righteousness are those who are brought with sorrow and shame to their own guilt. The only ones ready to receive Jesus Christ as their righteousness are those who are brought to sorrow and shame of their own guilt. The solution is to come into the water. You might remember the Old Testament story of Naaman, the rich official who had leprosy, which in those days would eventually kill you. There was no cure. And he'd heard about the prophet Elisha, whom God had given power to perform miracles for people. When he went to see if Elisha could do anything about his leprosy, we read the following. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry 
and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Can't I maintain my respectability in the midst of this cure? Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So we turned and went off in a rage. The Jordan River, same river, the same muddy, humiliating river. Really, Elisha? Really, John? I'm sure the Pharisees in John's day, well, we don't even have to guess. They, they were asking the same question as Naaman. Aren't there other rivers we could do this in? More dignified rivers, cleaner rivers? Can't we make this like a, like a ceremonial washing? We're familiar with those. Rather than a baptism for the confession of sin. I mean, it's barbaric. Why does the kingdom of God have to make its touchdown on the banks of this river? Maybe you've heard similar things, and the topic of the cross comes up in conversation. Really? Jesus Christ? The religious joke? The sitcom icon? the source material for musicals, the long-haired hippie, Jesus Christ and him crucified, the only way to be saved? That seems kind of vulgar and primitive. All this talk about blood and the washing of sin doesn't seem like the kind of Savior I need or want. Why would I want to own my complicity in the death of this man. I'm pretty sure my sin, you know, if I even have sin, isn't so bad it would actually require anyone's death. Surely there are other ways to get rid of this guilt, psychotherapy, meds, something, right? And like Naaman, and like the Pharisees, We leave in a rage. We are offended. We think we're avoiding shame and humiliation in that moment. When really what we're choosing to do is carry it for the rest of eternity. Just as Naaman's cure wouldn't happen without his bathing in the Jordan so our cure won't happen without coming to the spiritual Jordan of the cross. The place of humiliation, yeah, but the place of restoration. Yes, it is a humbling place to acknowledge that you have nothing in your hands to bring and you only have the cross to claim. This humiliation almost killed Christian in Pilgrim's Progress as he went through the valley of humiliation. It almost destroyed him. It unmade him. But it's in that valley, on the banks of that river, that you will meet Jesus. 
who is not a friend of the apparently righteous, but to the meek and the broken and the spiritually poor. Now, John wasn't Jesus. He couldn't forgive and cleanse people from their sins. His baptism was necessary because it prepared people to receive a greater cleansing than just water for repentance. We find that in Titus 3 verse 5. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by the righteous deeds we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of not physical water, new birth, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. John was like the realtor that comes to your house before you sell it and tells you all the things that are wrong with your house. So you can actually receive the solution when he gives them to you. If you don't acknowledge there's a problem, you won't be in a place to receive a solution. That's the problem. We think we're great. We think there's little to nothing that we would change. We think we're pretty good people. That's why Jesus means so little to so many professing Christians. It's the reason you see so many flare-ups between the Pharisees and Jesus and the Jews and the apostles in Acts and the hatred towards Christians throughout history. People don't like being told their house is a mess. They want to, we all want to live in the illusion that our house is beautiful. Which is why hypocrisy can't ever exist within the aroma of sincere faith. They can't live together in the same house. Either sincere faith will leave and the whole center, the whole institution just becomes a place of of mutually reinforcing hypocrisy, or hypocrisy will leave, and the church will grow. What do you want? What do we actually want? Do we want to go to a place, to a church, where everyone can just feel affirmed and comfortable? I imagine not because you go to Westmount, but it's good to ask ourselves this question. Where no one ever confronts you or you isolate yourself from that confrontation, no one ever challenges your good opinion of yourself, where your pet sins can just live on undiscovered, unchallenged. Do we want the kind of grace that lets us keep our sin? doesn't require any change, rescues us from hell, but that doesn't actually make us treasure Christ more? Or do we want to burn and cut down the notion of a fruitless 
grace. Just like the fruitless trees are burned in this chapter. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Hypocrisy is a bad foundation. It may get you through this life. It will crumble in the next. And the cure for hypocrisy is what we see in this chapter. Confession. To confess Something means to fully agree with it. It's to openly declare something without reservation. That means that what confession requires and what only God can do in us is to abandon self. And anything that might prevent us from throwing ourselves completely on God's provision. You won't see Christ as valuable if you were holding on to any part of yourself. That was Naaman's problem. His shred of dignity as a king was preventing him from giving himself to the cure. It's the same today. True Christian freedom isn't that you manage to maintain your illusion of whatever identity you've made for yourself. You know, constantly be gauging and calculating and and posturing and pretending so no one will find out the truth. It's better news than that. It's to acknowledge what we are before God so we can receive treatment for the sickness that we have. Talked to someone several months ago who was upset about some sin in her past. To the extent that she was starting to wonder if she was even a Christian or not. She wasn't attempting to, to justify or excuse it. It was just a simple, open confession. And I can tell you those moments are very rare. You get questions about marriage and hard Bible verses and other issues. Rarely do you just get to go into your medicine cabinet and minister Christ to an anxious inquirer. Jesus, who is, among all the things he is, a savior for confessing sake. Not for those who pretend they don't have anything to confess. When we come into the kingdom, when we come to Jesus, we need to come like the people on this riverbank. Can you bear that? Can you bear not being needed, but being in need? Do you find in yourself the desperation of the blind man who wouldn't let Jesus pass without crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. We talk about revivals 
Like, wouldn't that be great if that happened here? In our day, in our church? Wouldn't it be awesome if times of refreshing came from the presence of the Lord? Would you still say that if the revival looked like the Jordan River revival? What about a revival as if there's been any other kind that is a confessing revival? What about a revival where we can't have our safe and sterile and hypocritical Christianity anymore? Do we long for that kind of revival? The Christian life isn't just an initial confession and then coasting until heaven. It's to come daily, moment by moment, to the cross to be washed. It's to both confess our sins to the Lord, as we read in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And to each other. We read that in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And you say, but I don't want any of those things. I want a Christianity where I don't have to confess anything. And the question has to follow from that. First of all, why would you ever think you would enjoy revival? And second, how do you know you're not a hypocrite? When water sits, bacteria and disease and slime starts to grow. It starts to fester and stink. That's what hypocrisy does in the heart. And sadly, such is the fiercely proud opinion we have of ourselves that we would often rather maintain our disease than acknowledge the truth and receive healing, be cleansed. All the Pharisees had to do to prepare their hearts for Jesus was to take off their big fancy robes, lay down whatever identity they think they had, and come down to John like one of the common people. Their pride was the one thing preventing them. So I ask each of you today, You're going to just stay on the hill looking down, observing and critiquing the work of God. Or are you going to come down into the water? You need to know this was a crossroads moment for the Pharisees. It was their rejection and refusal of John's baptism that paved the way for their rejection of Jesus. You can't have both. You can't not get baptized and still be wet. You can't not confess sins and be saved. If you don't have a heart that is willing to confess sin, you will not have a heart that is able to receive Christ. You need to come down. 
you need to come to the greater Jordan, to the precious fountain of Jesus' blood, where you will lose all your guilty stains. Maybe you feel that you want to come down. Maybe you know that all of this is, and more is true of your heart. You're sitting, feeling this. Maybe you look forward to a day when you can just simply trust in Jesus, where there won't be this obstacle of pride in your way. Maybe you want to cry out with a father, with a sick son, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I have good news for you. Verse 9. God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Is your heart colder or harder than a stone? If it is, maybe your fears are justified. Otherwise, as the old hymn says, venture on him. Venture holy, let no other trust intrude. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the good news that is laid out for us in this chapter. And I pray that there would be no one here who is unable to see it as good news. I pray that if there are any hearts that are stones whose pride is keeping them from coming down to the river, Lord, the the spirit that hovered over the water and creation and brought order and harmony to a chaotic world, you can intervene in these hearts and bring order and life Lord, I pray that there would be no one here who is languishing under the sad state of a just a word-based religion that has never touched the heart. So Lord, I pray you would do a mighty work, not just here as we go home, as we consider these things and ask those hard questions if these are true of us. I pray that you would bring true clarity, true insight, that you would receive all the praise and the glory and honor. We pray this in your name. Amen.